Our text this morning is uh, Luke. It's Luke chapter 14, and uh, that can be found on page 874 in the Pew Bible. You'll want it open, it'll help you, it'll help me. Uh, if you have that Bible uh, open as we make our way through uh, these verses, it's Luke chapter 14. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. What Luke has recorded for us, and in case you're interested, uh, we're going to be in Luke for a few more weeks. And then as we move towards summer, we'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, gathering some, thank you, from wisdom, literature, uh, what God might have for us about uh, the vanity of life, uh, the challenges of life in a broken world. So we're going to study Ecclesiastes this summer in case you want to read ahead and prepare for that. I thought I'd just uh, bring that to your attention. Uh, Hearty welcome uh, to anyone who's a guest with us uh, again uh, this day. Uh, We we are not just parachuting into this random verse at this random place. Uh, We could do that uh, and we might find something of uh, Jesus's wisdom or his love or his compassion uh, and his truth, his power. Uh, and, and, And sometimes you might even find something that is shocking. Uh, that is rather alarming, uh, if not altogether uh, just a bit provocative. And you're going to find that such even hostile. That's uh, somewhat of what we discover. So we wouldn't just parachute into this passage, except that we're making our way through books of the Bible uh, in, a, in a consecutive uh, way. As we enter the narrative where we find ourselves right now, Jesus uh, has got his face set towards Jerusalem so that he can be uh, the fulfillment of the king. But he's not going to go there and be crowned and, and ascend a throne. He's going to be crowned with the crown of thorns. In Jerusalem, he knows that he will suffer. He knows, that, he knows full well that he will die and that his, his throne will be uh, a cross. And it's here that you would probably count this as Jesus' probably most unpopular sayings, uh, the least likely verses in the Bible to be memorized. Okay, There's maybe a few others, but this would be pretty high on the list. Uh, they're not hard, and they're hard sayings of Jesus. Not hard because they're difficult to understand, but they're difficult to digest. They're difficult to truly embrace. Jesus, we are in this portion here where we've been studying the last few weeks, where Jesus is saying, "Listen, I'm the narrow door, and and you have to." You have to lay things aside to enter into that narrow door. And part of that which we lay aside, we talked about last week, are things like prejudice and our presumption and our pride that we set aside if we're to be. And if we do, then we're welcomed. We're welcomed because we have a host of a great banquet that is beyond what anyone could, any of us could possibly imagine that is prepared for those Who love God, who are his sons and his daughters to come into his kingdom and to feast someday. We are guests of a great host. If you think about celebrities, politicians, if you think about, you know, sports figures, if you just think about the regular Joe or Sally out there who likes to have some recognition, even if that's just on social media, we'd love to have more followers, we'd love to have a few more likes. Some people are just over the top about that. Jesus is quite the contrary. Entirely opposite. Jesus is not concerned with gathering recognition or merely fans. In fact, in this opening verse, as we're going to read here in just a moment, Luke records in verse 15 of chapter 14, in verse 15, Jesus records, excuse me, Luke records this. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus. But, but Jesus is not keen on that. That doesn't mean, oh, Jesus must be really happy because all of these people are following him. He, and he's actually not. Jesus, in some ways, is particularly disturbed by this crowd that is around him. This is a passage 
Go ahead and stand as we're going to show deference to God's word. This is a passage, my friends, that if we read it carefully and we take it seriously, then we find it to be painful. Because, why? Amongst other things, it exposes the places in the parts of our hearts that are self-centered. Not God-centered, but self-centered. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray because we're going to need God's help for sure. All right. Verse 25, excuse me, not verse 15. We're beginning in verse 25 of Luke 14. Hear this. This is the word of God. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, Cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who has come against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a greater way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any, of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may be seated. Father, we know that you and with you, with you and with your word, there are springs and there are streams of living water that flows. Would you please forgive us, would you forgive me for drinking the Kool-Aid of the dark and the self-centered ways of the world that says, if you just love and serve and please and live and entertain everything for yourself, you'll be happy. Lord, it hasn't brought happiness. It hasn't, well, maybe it has, but it hasn't, it hasn't brought joy and it can't satisfy. So would you please right now satisfy us, even give us a hunger for your truth. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a hunger for, for, for you, the Prince of Peace, your Son, our Lord. It's in His name we ask it. Amen. I was probably a teenager, and we were driving uh, along in our Dodge Caravan, first edition. You know, this is the 80s. And it had this thing, kids, it's called a tape deck. And uh, you insert this thing called a cassette. I don't know what we were listening to as we drove down the road. Maybe it was Motown. My dad always likes Motown. I said, Dad, can we hit pause on Motown? I want to throw in something really good for you. It's, it's this group called Run DMC. <laughs> now, I don't know what I was thinking or not thinking when I decided to do this, but it probably took nothing less than 20 seconds of Run DMC for my dad and a whole host of F-bombs and MF bombs for my dad to hit the eject button so fast. I don't think he tossed it out the window, but I never saw that thing again. I'll just say that. True story. Here's another true story. Uh, a young gal, young Christian girl, well-meaning. She was uh, a teenager and she was following Christ. She wanted her dad to follow 
Jesus. And so she came up with a good idea. Well-meaning, she bought her dad. Uh, this is another thing, kids, sorry, this is archaic. A thing called CDs. And uh, she bought her, her dad a collection of CDs, which is the New Testament uh, audio. And she encouraged him on his commute to listen to the New Testament. And he did. And he got his way through the New Testament. True story. Got to this passage. Rolled down the window. Hit the eject button. Tossed the CD out the window. And the guy said to himself, her father, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. Friends, in many ways, that is exactly the response Jesus is looking for. He does want us to be alarmed. He does want for half-hearted disciples to discern, to even step away. A disciple, a true disciple, is a learner and a listener. But some of them in the crowd that day, the verse 25, great crowd that followed him, were just there for a free lunch, right? They were interested. They wanted the blessings. It was a fish sandwich, by the way. (laughs) Don't worry, I got more dad jokes. Um, They're just there for the blessing. They're not there for Jesus. They're there for the blessing. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. You're confused. You don't know what this means and what this costs. Two things, I think, that are going on here. There's a calling and there's a calculating. One on the part of Jesus, one on our part. The, the calling is Jesus's. And when we hear that calling, we say, did I hear him right? Did I hear Jesus correctly? The second is a calculating, which is a question that we ought to pose for ourselves. Should I sit down for this? I have them both listed those headings in the order of service. So let's just look at it. The calling, right? Jesus is using some pretty provocative, shocking language. Did I hear him correctly? And the answer is probably a mix. Yes, you did. And no, you didn't. There's no fine print here. Right? There's no, there's no bait and switch. There's no hidden costs. Right? Like every good deal that comes along and every salesperson who's trying to get you on board or to close the deal... You, you naturally come with, well, what, what's involved and what's the fine print? There's no fine print. Jesus is radically calling us to prioritize him above our ambitions. Nothing wrong with ambition. Our friendships. No, nothing wrong with that inherently either. And even our own life and our own possessions. First, in verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his mother and father. That's a, that's a good sermon text for next week on Mother's Day, right? <laughs> if anyone doesn't hate his mother, well, can't be a follower of Jesus. We'll just pick that up next week. Speaking of good mothers, I've known my sweet wife, Krista, for 20 years. I've never heard this woman say the word hate. I've never heard her say the word hate. Even when she has a very strong aversion to things, she'll say things like, it's not my most favorite. (laughs) The only time I've heard her say the word hate is when she's correcting the children, okay, and me too, for using too harsh of language. Don't use the word hate. So why is Jesus using the word hate? What does he mean? What does he not mean? Hate here is not about our feelings. Hate here is about what you choose, 
what you prioritize, what you reject. In a somewhat parallel passage, Matthew records what Jesus says in Matthew 10. And this is a little less provocative in the language. But in Matthew 10, Jesus says this, verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. One of the reasons that we know that Jesus cannot mean that we have a hate you know, in other words, a feeling of contempt towards others is because elsewhere, this is one of the principles of interpreting the Bible. We go elsewhere, we read, but you clearly told us that we should honor, not hate our father and our mother. We should honor them. You said that we should love our spouse. We, we read in scripture so clearly that Jesus even says that we should love our enemies. So he cannot be saying that we should hate them. But he is speaking about An undivided allegiance. He knows that we might be tempted to take those things of the creation and put it above the creator. You know, sex and marriage and friendship and family are all created by God. We didn't invent those things. Hello. And God gave them as good gifts to us. But they're just part of the creation. They are not. Worthy of, of worship as the creator is. He's speaking here of prioritizing our love and our commitments to him above all else. Above anyone else. He even is speaking here of our very lives. And that's why he makes reference to a cross. Now we might think of a cross as something that is uh, cumbersome or, or uh, you know, is... is uh, you know, is, is, is difficult. In that day, a cross is nothing else but a symbol of execution and suffering. And so he's saying, if you want to take the cross, he's saying, you need to lay down your very life. He's talking about humiliation and, and even, even pain, great cost. He's saying nothing less than, if you want to follow Jesus, come and 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 hate your life, despise despise your life. Now, again, we don't want to fall into a, a hyper literalism here, just like not hating our our mother or father, because not everyone is called to die for Jesus. Some are. There's some this very day living in other parts of the world under other regimes and other persecution that they genuinely may be fearful of their life because of their faith with Jesus. And many down through the ages, even this very year, this very week probably, have died because of their allegiance and love for Jesus. But most people are not. We're not called to die, but we are called to die on a daily basis to our own selfish ambition and sinful desires. We are called to sacrifice, and it's a humbling thought, right? Our time, our money, our schedule, our, our precious desires. And we're already doing that, right? We're, we're, already, we're, already, we're already prioritizing things in life. But what is it that we're prioritizing? And for whom and for what? Is it worth it? Does that make sense? You're giving up stuff. You and I, we're all doing this. We're prioritizing. Are, are, is it worth it? Which leads me to my next point. And that is, there's Jesus clearly calling for things. But then we're calculating something. Calculating. Verse 28. 
The opening parable that Jesus uses two of them. The opening parable is about construction. The second one is about a king or a military leader. But in both scenarios, this one phrase is mentioned. Look carefully with me. Verse 28 and in verse 31. First, sit down. So in other words, you need to deliberate. You need to, you need to consider uh, and assess the situation. Calculate the cost. Yes. A hen and a pig are walking down the street one day having a conversation. Sounds like the beginning of a dad joke. I'm 40 something. I'm bald. I drive a minivan. I have four kids. Can you help me? Okay. A hen and a pig are walking down the road. It's a Sunday morning and they see the sign on the town center's church announcing what the sermon will be this day. Here's what the sign says. How to help the needy. They they walk a little further. They converse a little further. The hen says, I've got an idea. If we want to help the needy, then we we could host a really nice big breakfast. Pig says, why not? Sounds like a great idea. The hen says, yes, let's have eggs and bacon. They walk a little further. Then the pig says, you know, I'm not so sure about this breakfast because... On your part, it might mean that you would have an offering. For me, it seems to involve a little bit more commitment. You may forget everything I've said about this sermon, but you'll remember that. And I want you to tie it back to the fact that Jesus is saying, all. All of it. Everything. Our commitment. You know, you'd have to have a lot of audacity, right? To say this. I mean, even a wonderful leader, even a powerful person, even someone of great influence and wealth, it would take a lot of audacity to say these things. And Jesus is calling people. He knows full well that he has the authority and the capacity to do and say these very things. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright reflects on this. He says, imagine a politician standing on a soapbox Addressing a crowd saying, if you vote for me, then guess what? You'll lose your homes and families. You're going to have to pay higher taxes for lower wages. And you're, you're deciding in favor of losing all of this and all the best. So come, who's going to vote for me and who's on my side? Well, no one's going to vote for that guy, right? But isn't this exactly what Jesus is saying? Well, no, it's not. But, but then he goes on, right, says, imagine instead of the politician, a great leader who is heading out on a, an expedition, passing through a very dangerous high mountain passageway on a mission to bring emergency medical aid and supplies, food to a remote village. And this expedition leader warns those who are with him, if we go any further, well, to make the pass, we're going to have to, to set aside our packs because we can't make it. It's too steep. And once you leave them, what you leave behind, you're going to leave it forever. And in fact, the, the, the path is so extremely dangerous, you might as well sit down and write that last postcard to your family because you may never see them. This sounds hard, but it's better understood. Jesus is more like the expedition leader than the politician. He's saying, reckon yourself dead. Colossians 2:20 Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The two parables mentioned by Jesus here are all about calculating. They're all about counting the the cost. The, The one with construction, right? I mean, if you put it in more modern day terms, it's saying, don't be impulsive. If you're setting out to build, you might want to check the code. You might want to hire an engineer, an architect. You might want to contact your bank to see if you have a loan or the funds necessary. Because if you don't, it will be a shameful end. Jesus is inviting us to a radical discipleship that involves self-denial. The essence of self-denial for a lot of people is self-improvement, right? I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to save money and I'm going to save calories. This is not self-denial. This is a self-denial that Jesus is saying... By the way, it's also not a moral, spiritual self-denial that we deny ourselves certain things so that we can attain His blessing. This is is not a self-denial that says, oh, I just want to conquer that one one besetting sin in my life. No, the essence of self-denial here is an utter dependence, a wholehearted, whole life abandon to throw ourselves at the mercy and the grace of God. Manifest in the suffering of our Savior, our risen Savior, the victorious King. And we have a fuller picture. They didn't know this. They didn't, the large crowd with Jesus, they didn't know, some of them, that He was heading for suffering, or at least they didn't want to hear it. But they also didn't see what we see in the resurrection, in the vindication of the Son of God. And then, if you look down further at our last two verses, 34 and 35, He talks this, salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? This is a little bit confusing for us because, you know, the doctor's always saying don't eat so much salt. It's so accessible and it's, you know, it's going to throw your blood pressure up. Uh, Salt doesn't normally lose its saltiness, but that's because you got to place it in their, their day and age. It's not like salt from clean water that's, you know, that's or mined from a. Uh, you know, uh, uh, from minerals. This is the type of salt that they would acquire from low-laying marshy areas that might be intermixed. It's a, it's a less, it's an inferior type of salt. It does still add seasoning and preservatives, but it's, it's inferior. And it was mixed oftentimes and had, you know, gypsum and other things that would contaminate it. So it could be at times watered down. And that type of salt's not worth anything. And Jesus is saying, this is not what you want. Salt is great. It adds flavor. It adds Preservatives, that's what Christians are supposed to be in the world. But if it loses its saltiness, well, here are the solemn results that come about that Jesus is referring to. You're, you're thrown out. You're not even worth being thrown on the manure pile because that would, that would jeopardize the future fertilizer of that. You make, does that make sense? These are conditions of a disciple. The condition, if not this, then this. If not this and these things, then you cannot be my disciple. But by saying you cannot be my disciple, he's not saying, nice try. You know, didn't quite, uh, you know, reach the bar. I know you wanted to. I I know you were trying hard, but you didn't make it. That's not what he's saying. 
It's more along the lines, you cannot be my disciple, meaning you will not. Because if you have seen and tasted and discovered and encountered the real Jesus, then it won't seem that way. One author I read this week put it well. He says, the point is not to count the cost and turn away as if it was too costly. It's to count the cost and embrace them because it's worth it. He is worth it. I hope you see and understand the distinction. So I'm asking you, we're we're considering, are we a disciple and is it worth it today? Some of you have already answered that question for yourself. And the answers are different sometimes. A disciple, as I said earlier, is a listener and a learner. A disciple, discipleship is a whole life thing. And the whole of that life is learning more and more and more and more to be dependent upon Jesus. And not myself. In a little bit, we're going to elect some new officers. In the course of their preparation, there was an exam. There was an interview. And in that interview, I asked each of these men, what's been the cost of discipleship for you? What's been the cost of discipleship for you? Some of the answers were, it's cost me job promotions. Some of them were, it's, it's cost me friends. Some of the, some of the men answered, it's, it's cost me being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Some would say, it's cost, it, it, it's cost me relationships with my own family who ridicule me for being a follower of Jesus. I'm sure some of you can identify And yet, every one of them, in some way, shape, or form, says, yeah, but in comparison, it's been worth it. He is worth it. In other words, we don't say, what am I giving up for him? It's what am I giving back to him? It's all his. And he has been good, and he has been generous, and he has been gracious. And so I want to respond with my whole self. John... Chapter 6, there's another portion of the hard sayings of Jesus here. And at the close of it, it says this. After this, many of his disciples, quote, disciples, part of the great crowd, right, that we just read about, that kind of disciple, those folks who were tagging along. After many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus, Jesus said to the twelve, Do any of you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, that's me. That's me. The the full on mix, just like Peter. I don't know where else I would go. I don't know what else I would do. I don't know what else I would give my life to except Jesus. Why am I a disciple? Because His his grace, His grace has humbled me. His grace has enabled me. His grace has invited me and compelled me to follow Him. Thanks be to God. At times I waver. At times I feel like abandoning my first love. At times I'm half-hearted. But in the end, his, his relentless grace has called me, and many of you know this too, 
His grace and His love and His truth have called us and drawn us back. I'm a follower of Jesus because He's, and at times it feels like a half-hearted one, because He's not. Jesus is not a half-hearted builder. He's not a half-hearted Savior. He's generous. He's loving, even to the point of sacrifice. I love and follow Jesus because He laid down His life for me, and He has made precious promises, and He has made good on those promises. One of which clearly has taken place in the resurrection and another one is on the horizon when he returns again. When he comes and he takes his disciples, them and only them, into the greatest banqueting feast that sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father could ever possibly imagine. A celebration at the wedding supper of the Feast of the Lamb. The kid's saying it at Easter, is he worthy? Yes, he is. Resounding, he is, he is. We, we, we're going to doubt that. We're going we're we're to at times question that. We're going to be tempted to look and think and, and seek elsewhere. And then his grace. His grace and his word. And as we come to this table, moves us back. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that right now you would take and do business in our own hearts and priorities, that we would be hearing clearly the calling. I pray that those who have ears would hear. Their hearts would be soft. My heart would be soft. Lord, would you please forgive us for the times and the ways that we have not prioritized you. It shows up in how much we are infatuated and love ourselves and our own agenda and we can't love others. Would you please have mercy? Would you guide us into a better way? Would you guide us into light? Would you guide us into a life of surrender? Please, Lord, for everyone here. And may we be ambassadors to those who are not yet speaking well in our words and in our deeds of how worthy Jesus is. Lord, we pray, we know we live in Troubled and confusing times, that'll probably be the case for a long time. But we do pray that you would be merciful. We do pray for our President Biden and his administration. We pray for our governor, Charlie Baker. We pray for other leaders that have many weights and many tests. And I pray you give them wisdom. I pray for peace. We pray for peace in places like Ukraine. We pray for people, Lord, who are struggling with depression and loneliness and anxiety. People who are struggling and it's obvious. People who are struggling and it's not obvious. But it's inside. It's deep. It's heavy. We pray for people that are struggling physically with ailments. With weakness. We again remember our sweet dear sister Emily. We pray you'd strengthen her. We pray that you would extend her days even as we think about the harsh effects of this cancer treatment. Lord have mercy on her. Thank you for her faith. Lord we... We want to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we do this very day. We pray especially for the Newtons, their grandbaby Chloe, who's coming soon. We pray for their daughter-in-law, Brittany, that you would sustain her strength, strengthen her. Lord, we pray for all the unborn children in our church. What a blessing. We pray for the mothers who carry them. Lord, teach us, guide us, remind us, humble us. All of this we pray with great hope, with great expectation. Even with joy, because we pray in the name of our Savior.